last week talking to you about this idea of the glorious impossible. And uh, <clears throat> that, that title I can't uh, take credit for. It comes from a song written by the Gaithers, and the first part of that song says, See the virgin is delivered in a cold and crowded stall. Mirror of the Father's glory lies beside her in the straw. He is mercy's incarnation. Marvel at this miracle, for the virgin gently holds the glorious impossible. So many miracles surrounding the Christmas story. And uh, we spoke last Sunday evening simply about the fact of miracles and that sometimes God works in ways that we cannot explain or understand, yet we know that somehow he has interacted with, with the reality that we live in and has worked powerfully to bring his will uh, to fulfillment. And we simply rest in it. Remember that a miracle is something that cannot be explained by the forces currently at work. It's something uh, not, uh, not a contradiction of science, but something outside of science. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an important distinction there. Um, often people have the misconception that what is outside of science uh, is not valid and we should not accept or, or believe in it. Yet, there are many things that are outside of the realm of science. Simple uh, morality and ethics are not any, in any way related to science. It's just in a different, in a different realm. Neither are miracles a contradiction of natural law. Um, uh, they, it, I, well, I gave you an illustration last week how sometimes uh, they might be an intervention between uh, what would naturally take place. Uh, for example, the law of gravity. And if, I, if, if something is, is caught out of midair before it falls to the ground, we haven't broken the law of gravity. It's just we've intervened to keep the natural law from, uh, from having its fulfillment. And that is often the way God works in, in the miraculous. I want to talk to you uh, this evening a little bit about uh, the miracles of alignment uh, that took place surrounding the birth of Christ. And uh, just as a, uh, well, I'm going to shamelessly use this verse as a springboard um, to, to go as, as some preachers have said, I'm going to take a text from which to depart. Um, <clears throat> although you will see that we'll be talking about what the text says. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. When the fullness of time had come, Jesus came at the right time. There are often times when we look at our lives and our circumstances and wonder when is God going to intervene. 
When is God going to step into our world, step into our lives, and begin helping the way we think we need him to? I'm sure the nation of Israel had long been thinking, when is God going to intervene? When is he going to help us? They'd gone for between 400 and 500 years without any uh, uh, prophetic voice, without hearing. Uh, I've mentioned this to you before, and most of you know, in our Bibles, uh, you probably have one blank page between uh, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And yet that single page that separates our Old and New Testament represents about four to 500 years of history during which uh, the, the nation of Israel and uh, the world at large seemingly had no, uh, no uh, intervention from God, no prophetic voice from God, though I'm certain that God was active and working in the world during that time. So why was it that at, at, at a particular point in time, as Paul says here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Someone has called this the miracle of alignment. First of all, there is cultural alignment that took place at the moment uh, in time, uh, the moment in history when Jesus Christ came. First of all, there was uh, a messianic expectation. Strictly from the gospel accounts, the expectation of the Jewish Messiah comes through loud and clear. For example, we read in Luke chapter 2 about Simeon and Anna, both of which uh, were at the temple when Jesus was brought uh, there to be, uh, to be circumcised uh, on the eighth day. And they were there waiting, and both of them recognized having somehow had it revealed to their hearts and to their spirits that, that in their lifetime they would see the Messiah. And somehow, through, it, it must have been through the witness of the Holy Spirit, we would say, when they saw Mary and Joseph bringing in the baby, Jesus. We talked about the baby this morning, how God coming in the form of a baby, just amazing. And to look at, at a little infant and say, aha, this is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. And yet they recognized. Simeon in particular detailed the, the Messiah's role as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. When the wise men came, and uh, we read about in Matthew chapter 2, uh, the scholars in Israel directed them to Bethlehem as the Messiah's birthplace. It's interesting to me how, how much the Jewish scholars knew. They knew their Bibles. They knew their Old Testament. When the wise men came, they were able to say, and Herod inquired, where is the Messiah to come from? That's Bethlehem. They knew. They knew where to, where to point them to. <clears throat> John the Baptist, in answer to the priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem, they, they came asking if he was the Messiah. 
there was a sense in, in the world at large, the culture at large, particularly in uh, the nation of the Jews, but also in the larger population, uh, there was a longing for a savior. We'll speak more about that in just a moment. We read in John chapter 4 about the Samaritan woman at the well, and she says that we know that Messiah will come. They were anticipating. Later on in Acts chapter 5, we read about Gamaliel, uh, who hints at the, the Messiah fever of the day. Uh, when he mentions two other men around the same time uh, uh, of the ministry of Jesus Christ, that they had gathered a following to themselves by claiming to be the Christ, and yet neither could fulfill the prophetic requirements, and consequently their followers dispersed. Do you remember that story of how Gamaliel before the Sanhedrin was, was telling them, if this is of God, if this man is really the Messiah, then there's nothing we can do to stop it. But if it's not of God, then it will, it'll take care of itself. We won't have to worry about it. There was a sense of messianic expectation in the world that they lived in that day. Also, there were societal conditions that existed at the time of Jesus' birth that paved the way for Jesus to come and have the impact on the world, not just at that particular time and place, but on the world for all of the rest of time and history. It was at that time that Rome had unified much of the world under its government, giving a sense of unity to various lands. And also because that time the empire was relatively peaceful, it made worldwide travel possible, more accessible, and allowed the early Christians to spread the gospel to all the nations as Jesus left the command. Such freedom to travel freely and in relative safety would have been impossible during other time frames. While Rome had conquered militarily, Greece had conquered culturally. And a common form of the Greek language was the trade language, was spoken throughout the empire of Rome and made it possible to communicate the gospel to many different people groups through one common language. Also, the fact that while Rome was conquering the various nations of the world, all of these nations had their own gods that they were praying to, false gods. And the fact that their false gods failed to give them victory over the Roman armies caused many of them to abandon worship of their false gods. At the same time, in the more cultured cities, the Greek philosophy and science of the time left many people uh, spiritually empty in the same way that the atheism of communist governments have left an emptiness, a void uh, in those nations that were behind the Iron uh, Curtain during the Cold War period. I read uh, a story of a man who preached in uh, Romania shortly after the fall of, uh, of communist rule there. And uh, he said that as he preached, he noticed every once in a while there would be a, a wave of weeping. And he said as he paid attention 
he came to realize it was every time he used the name Jesus. When he said the name Jesus, all the, uh, at first he said it was just the ladies in the crowd would begin weeping at the name of Jesus. And then as he continued preaching and, and uh, would again repeat the name of Jesus, gradually he said he noticed it was, it was not just the women, but the men that would join in in, in just shedding tears, weeping at just simply hearing the name of Jesus. And he said as he continued preaching, he was so moved at their response to Jesus' name that he began weeping himself. The power of the name and the presence of Jesus, when people have looked everywhere else to other gods, to other ideologies and philosophies for a solution to the ills and the problems of the world, and when those have failed, they come back to realize that it's Jesus who is the answer. We read an interesting verse of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. To give you a little bit of background before I read it. Uh, the, the culture of Rome, the desire and the pursuit of Rome was glory. You know, you read in history about the glory of the Roman Empire. The desire of Greece was for knowledge. You read about the, the philosophers and the scholars and, and much of modern day thought today still greatly influenced by men like Aristotle and Plato, Greek philosophers of thousands of years ago. Rome desired and sought glory. The pursuit of Greece was for knowledge. The pursuit of the Jewish nation was for light was for light. Paul, the apostle, talks about the coming of Jesus this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul, I believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took the, the three primary pursuits of the three dominant cultures of his day and said, we find all of those things, light and glory and knowledge, are all found in the face of Jesus Christ. There was a miracle of cultural alignment that made it the perfect time for Jesus to come. There was also political alignment, political alignment. I took a little time this afternoon and refreshed my memory of Roman history, uh, particularly surrounding uh, the Emperor Octavian. And it was the Emperor Octavian who introduced what is known as the Pax Romana. Um, which is Latin for Roman peace. And uh, the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, is a roughly 200-year-long time span of Roman history, which is identified uh, as a, a period, a, a golden age, so to speak, uh, of increased and sustained Roman power in the world that brought 
uh, uh, that made possible uh, relative peace and order and safety and stability in uh, most of the regions of the world at that time. Yes, there were, there were several revolts and wars that took place during that time frame, yet compared to what went before and compared to what came after, it was a period of relative uh, stability in the world at large. This time frame began with the Emperor Octavian in about the year 27 BC. You may recognize him better by his other name, Caesar Augustus. As I think about the Christmas story and I think about Octavian or Caesar Augustus, and then you think about the prophecies concerning the birth of Christ, how is a couple from Nazareth going to get to Bethlehem where their baby is supposed to be born? Well, we have the decree of Caesar Augustus that we read about in Luke chapter 2. You're familiar with these words. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There was a, a miracle of political alignment that took place. It's really interesting if you, if you follow the paths backwards and trace all of the different strands that get woven together and come together at just the right time so that God's plan and God's will uh, comes to fruition just as he has promised that it would. There is cultural alignment, there is political alignment, but also there is prophetic alignment, prophetic alignment. We go back to our Old Testaments, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. We read there, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his 
kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We continue to read Micah chapter 5 verse 2. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> These are just highlights. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We have the fact of his coming his name, the fact that he will be God with us. We have the, the location of his birth, Bethlehem. Not only that, but we also in Daniel chapter 9 have a time frame that lets us know and let the Old Testament scholars know, the wise men know, roughly when he was to be born. Daniel chapter 9, if I can find these, uh, these uh, verses. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. I, I, I could go on and there's, there's a lot going on in these verses. Uh, from the context, we ought to understand that these weeks or, or groups of sevens refer to groups of seven years, not seven days. And we can examine history and line up the details of the first 69 weeks. Uh, the 70th week has yet to take place. The countdown of the 70 weeks begins with the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. We read about that in verse 25. This command uh, was given in the year 445 B.C. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 5. After seven sevens plus 62 sevens, or 69 times seven years, the prophecy states the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and that the end will come like a flood, meaning major destruction. And here you have a, a fairly clear reference to Christ's death on the cross. Some... Scholars believe that it is very likely the, the writings of Daniel that guided the wise men who came, that perhaps the wise men from the east were descendants of Daniel. What are the odds that all of these messianic prophecies would all come together and take place, be fulfilled, in one person. 
there's a British evangelist named Canon J. Johns. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. Uh, if you are, uh, if you ever have the opportunity, I'd recommend you see if you can find uh, him. You can find him on YouTube or other places on the internet. Canon J, the initial J, and then Johns. Uh, he is a very interesting speaker. And uh, on one occasion, he said, "I've got," he, he said, "I've got a lot of friends in in the Middle East." And, and many are, are Jewish friends. And he said, I was having, uh, I was having conversation with one of, my, I, one of my Jewish rabbi friends. And he said, I'll tell you what let's do. He said, let's go out and let's have lunch together. And uh, we'll go through the Messianic prophecies. This is, this is a Jewish rabbi, uh, not a Christian. And he said, you know, of course, how many... Uh, how many messianic prophecies there are? And the rabbi said, oh, yes, there's about, uh, about 300 or so. And, and Canon John said, yes, there's actually 322 to be specific. And he said to his rabbi friend, he said, let's do this. He said, let's sit down together and read through the messianic prophecies. I'll read one and you read one. I'll read one and then you read one. And after we finish reading them, let's ask ourselves a question. Does this remind us of anyone? And the reality is, after you read through the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that were written, many of them hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus Christ, you get a very clear picture that portrays Jesus. Incidentally, if you want to know what the odds are, the probabilities, the mathematical probabilities that all 322 prophecies would be fulfilled in one man, the probability is 1 over 84 with 100 zeros after that. That's a number too big for me to say what it is. Um, in other words, as Canon J. Johns would say, it's something that doesn't happen every day. In other words, the probabilities are, imp are really impossible. All of these miracles of alignment, cultural alignment, in other words, the conditions in the world were right just at that time to introduce Jesus to the world and not just for that time and place in history, but, but for the rest of time in history, that was the right moment. We might think, why not now? Wouldn't it be great if now, you know, Jesus were here in the flesh? Uh, we can't go into all the reasons why now is not the right time. But then was the exact right time for Jesus to come. The cultural uh, uh, alignment, the political alignment, and the prophetic alignment, everything came together at just the right moment. And as we think about this evening, how this might be the word of the Lord for you, how might it encourage and help your heart? As I mentioned to you last week, we have two options, two that we can do. And it is either wrestle or rest. Obviously, last week was about trying to, trying to figure God out, trying to understand miracles, uh, trying to make logical sense of what happens. This evening would be more about timing. God's timing. We may look at our lives and think, 
sometimes that God never, we, probably none of us ever would say, God, you are too early. But often we may think that God is too late or that he's going to be too late. Yet as so many of us heard, have heard, as so many of us have heard in the past, God's clock keeps perfect time. I'm going to close with this, a writing by a lady named Linda Cox. She's writing this back in the year 2012. And as I read, it interested me, when is the next leap year? The next leap year is 2024. She writes this, as I turned the calendar page, I was reminded that 2012 is a leap year. February has 29 days because a leap day has been added to keep calendars synchronized with the Earth's rotation. And she said, I learned recently that it is also necessary to synchronize the atomic clock with the Earth's rotation by adding or subtracting leap seconds. Did any of you know this? Some of you knew this. I never knew this until I read it just today. Leap, we have leap day every four years, and I just assumed that that was all we needed, was a day every four years that that got us back in sync to where we're supposed to be. But no, that's not enough. Every once in a while, in fact, she writes back in 2012 that one second, a leap second, was going to be added at the end of June in the year 2012 to keep time synchronized with the rotation of the earth. And even with all of this leaping, the leap days, the leap seconds that are added periodically, no calendar or clock that we use is perfect. All are off by seconds or minutes, maybe hours or even days a year when compared to the earth's rotation. But man continues using leap days, leap seconds, and whatever else he can devise <clears throat> to make calendars and clocks perfect according to his time. How easily we forget that it doesn't matter how many seconds, minutes, hours, or days we have if they are not in alignment with God's will. You see, our times are in God's hand. Period. That's the end of the matter. You remember, you remember Mary and Martha, how they waited four days after Lazarus' death for Jesus to come, and by their estimation, he was late. Lord, if you had only been here, our brother had not died. But contrary to what they thought, Jesus was... Whether we're waiting for a physical healing or a new job, or maybe it's for a prodigal child to come back home. You see, God's clock always keeps perfect time so that nothing in our lives is either too early or too late, but always right on time. And we can rest in that thought no matter what man's calculations may say. God's clock keeps perfect time. 